0: Welcome to Obstetric Anesthesia Basics, a short podcast series for anaesthesia trainees new to obstetric anaesthesia.
1: The first topic being general anaesthesia for caesarean section, and I'm joined by Matt and Roger, who are experts in the field of obstetric anaesthesia.
0: <laughs> Thanks, we already talked about it. We we're experienced, not experts. Very experienced.
1: <laughs> Um, so thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, um, Laura. So the first thing I'd like Thanks. to talk about are the indications for a general anaesthetic for cesarean delivery.
2: Shall I start? Yeah, so what yeah. do you
1: commonly see? Yeah.
2: And I, and I think it's probably good to classify that way. Well, you could go down the route of classifying as maternal or fetal indications. Mm. But I think if you go down the route of um, classifying them in terms of their frequency, and the most common reason is urgency. Uh, which may be maternal or fetal, Mm. but normally fetal. So Mm. the most common, most usual time we're doing obstetric general anesthesia is for the emergent um, case due to fetal distress. Mm. Mm. Um, And then other things will be failure. So we've tried a regional anesthetic and it's failed. Mm. So either we can't get it in or we've got it in and we've topped up and it's not working. Uh, The mother may refuse to have a regional block or there may be contraindications to a regional block. For example, bleeding risks, um, so coagulopathy, low platelets, or uh, musculoskeletal issues, or neurological issues. Mm. Um, And then I guess the final group would be operations where you think a regional block may not last long enough or may not be the best anesthetic technique. And I'm thinking here um, placenta, accreta, percreta type cases where there may be heavy blood loss, the operation may go on for a long period of time, and it may just be better. For everybody's golf to sleep from the start, does that yeah, sound reasonable,
0: Roger? Yep, and uh, I guess going back to the <coughs> bleeding as well, it sort of crosses over into cragopathy. If someone's having a big bleed and they're hypovolemic, uh, so there's cardiovascular instability, or they're septic and they've got a bit of shock, you know, usually I think it's um, safer to do a, a general anaesthetic than a spine or a, or a regional because because of cardiovascular reasons.
1: Mm. Yep. So it would probably be a relative, then, not.
0: That's a relative, yeah. yeah. Yep.
1: Great. So sounds like we don't do many general anaesthetics then for cesarean sections, so is this something to be feared?
0: Um, well, how many do we do? What's the the general rate is... Um, I can't remember, Matt, were you yeah. able to tell us what the percentage <laughs> of cesareans? The, the general WGAs. rate
2: is around about 5 to 10%. Mm. So this yeah. varies around the world, um, and there are still some relatively well-resourced countries where they do a lot more elective caesarean sections and general anaesthesia. Mm. Um, but yeah. in Australia, um, where the vast majority of elective caesareans and emergency caesareans are done with regional blocks, uh, the rates of general anaesthesia are much lower. Okay, But herein lies the problem. Um, we don't do it that often, mm. and when we do tend to do it, it tends to be in emergency cases yep. where there are a lot of other situational factors that can make things more worse. So in answer to your question... <laughs> We, uh, as a sort of entity, we should not fear it because we are, after all, anaesthetists and general is what we do for a living. But there are times when we should fear it and I think um, maybe during this conversation we can talk about those times. Uh, For example, the elective um, cesarean section is very different to the emergency cesarean section. I agree, yep. Um, And various different patient factors complexity as well
1: mm. is there a difference in the morbidity and mortality rates
2: yes yeah morbidity and mortality is higher in the emergency situation yep for, for a general a
1: whole stack of reasons versus neuraxial or versus elective general anesthesia
0: it's complicated mm. so I think the data is that um, there is more morbidity and mortality in general anesthesia cesareans but then again there's a, a higher proportion of those are emergency caesareans mm-hmm. and so there's other things going on with the mother. Mm. Uh, it's not like they're randomised into two, you know, even arms. So yeah, it's I mean, I uh, it? so your axial blocks fail more frequently in the emergency yeah. setting.
1: Mm. Yep. So if we are going to induce a patient then for a general anaesthetic in an emergency situation or an elective situation, um, what sort of agents do you think are commonly used? and What are the pros and cons?
0: Yep. Well, we're going to talk about the history of... General anesthesia over time as well?
1: We can do, yes. Yep,
0: okay. <laughs> Did you want to talk about that, Matt? I know you have um, gone through <laughs> the CMA's reports. <laughs> my, my older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, you, were still, you were alive in 1943 <laughs> when they put yeah, red, yeah. red rubber tubes in, didn't you? <laughs> I remember the days.
2: <laughs> James Simpson. Um, so there's, uh, I guess one of the, the great things about um, obstetric anesthesia safety is that over the years it has become safer, and when you look back at the confidential inquiries into maternal deaths, um, the anaesthesia component of that used to take up quite a bit of the book. Yeah. And over the years, now the, uh, our contribution to maternal death um, has become much, much lower. And the, the majority of our contribution previously was related to uh, general anaesthesia, um, specifically regurgitation and aspiration. Um, and also failed intubation. So by yep. reducing the rates of uh, intubation and the rates of general anaesthesia per se, we've reduced that rate of complication.
0: Yeah, and so going back in time, um, you know, a lot of that's all well documented in the in the UK, which has record, recorded you know, huge amounts of really useful data over the years. Um, esophageal intubations, which you know, were much more difficult to recognise before capnography was standard. Mm. And then... Um, Things like failed intubation and aspiration occurred at, at times when there were less experienced people having to do emergency general anaesthesia, caesareans in the middle of the night and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, okay. And, and you know, now we have supraglottic airways and video laryngoscopes and capnography and pulse oximetry. So things have uh, changed. Obstetric anaesthesia as a
2: uh, specialty didn't really exist for some time. Yep. And it was often perhaps viewed as the... Uh, quite sure what the term is but it wasn't it wasn't really viewed as a sexy part of what we did as yep. anesthetists mm. and it was actually the likes of people like Mendelssohn. we all know about Mendelssohn's syndrome and that's a syndrome of acid aspiration in um, pregnancy leading to significant harm um, and it was really Mendelssohn that noted that some of well several patients were experiencing this complication um, so not only did he describe it but he really tried to act on that by uh, he wasn't even anesthetist uh, he was actually mm. an obstetrician um, but he recognised that there wasn't really as much attention to detail to the care of pregnant women yeah. as to other patients within a hospital. So then that led on to the establishment of obstetric anaesthesia um, interest groups and departments and research and education. Yep. Um, and as a consequence of that, we're in a much better place now than we certainly used to be.
1: Hmm. Yep. So how has that evolved over time? What sort of um, general anaesthetic considerations do we have now that maybe we do differently now to then?
2: Well, I think it's recognising the risks. Mm. And in, in recognising the risks, you can um, mitigate some of them. For example, mm. um, feeding and avoiding feeding yep. during labour or mm-hmm. recognising that that can be a problem. And I think it's worth noting here that um, <coughs> your, how you manage a elective, fasted, non-labouring patient is very different to somebody who's been in labour who comes up for an emergency cesarean section hmm. um, when I say how you manage them it's more the risks inherent in managing them um, gastric emptying interestingly and we're finding this more with uh, gastric ultrasound and various other yep. techniques um, the, uh, the stomachs of pregnant women even at term even in obesity who aren't labouring or who haven't had any opioids um, are emptying just like any
0: other non-pregnant Mm. women hmm. and that's really relevant yeah. Um, yeah did you want us to talk about a little like really briefly overview of the changes in anesthesia in general which and, and how that has has changed over time and um, yeah, anesthesia as well
1: that would be great yep yeah. we've,
0: um, I think you've got a few notes here so um, yeah so back in the 50s you know that was before the time of muscle relaxants, wasn't it? So that's that's definitely before Matt and my time. Yeah, oh, just, <laughs> yeah. just. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so they didn't even intubate people back then. So you can see why um, aspiration was, a, was an issue. Uh, <clears throat> presumably, they just like put a and oropharyngeal airway, and they were breathing spontaneously um, back in those days, and mm-hmm. then. Uh, muscle relaxants came in and I guess that's when the risk of esophageal intubation became an issue because um, people weren't breathing spontaneously so um, uh, you could put the uh, endotracheal tube down the esophagus and ventilate their stomach and then I think you're doing a good job but obviously um, um, they'll die from hypoxic injury Mm. and if you don't have a pulse oximeter or a um, capnography you don't know you're doing that it could be uh, like a long time before you realise the patient Uh was actually blue it, it might be when they actually lose their pulse or something similar drastic Change. Nora's um, written down some good notes. I didn't know this. So thiopentone <laughs> came in, and was it 1959 by looks of it? <laughs> I didn't know it came in around that time. I no, thiopentone came in in Pearl Harbor. I remember seeing something about that. Okay. So I'm sure it's been around before that. Is that right, mate? It was used in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah. It? So that's not right. But um, maybe uh, succinum. <laughs> anyway, so there was a, a period of time where people were um, would give a small dose of thiopentone and succinum intubate these uh, women having GA seizures and just run them on nitrous wouldn't they mm-hmm. and they were worried about um, uh, respiratory depression in the neonate but that obviously um, had a lot of implications for awareness in the mother mm-hmm. which I think presume we'll talk about in a little bit later on will we mm-hmm. uh, at some stage cricoid came in in the 60s and this whole idea of rapid sequence intubation which um, is still contentious nowadays what is that and what other components of it Uh, and different volatiles and I think we already talked about um, some of the changes probably from the 70s onwards which have made it safer which include um, changes in the um, skill set of the people who are giving the anaesthetics so you know rostering people who have an interest in obstetric anaesthesia developing and then rostering more experienced people after hours to to do it rather than someone who's done six weeks of um, anaesthetics Um, and then having all these other monitoring equipment to make sure that you've got the tube in the right place and um, if you fail to intubate someone, you can rescue it with an LMA or a supraglottic airway. Um, pulse oximetry rec- and capnography to recognise situations early. Yep. Anything else, Matt? Um, I guess the other thing is checklists. So failed yep. intubation, simulation credits. training. Mm. So we, you know, we do a lot of simulation training and have done for many years. You know, t- you know talking about how to manage these things. Um, yeah, so I think those are all the major tra- changes over the years.
1: Yeah, brilliant. But when you think about it,
0: Laura, remarkably little has changed.
2: Mm. It's still a relatively basic mm. anaesthetic yeah, recipe. Yeah, it is. it is. You're right. Yeah. Um, and I think um, it doesn't necessarily, in my own opinion, need to change much from that as long as we're doing the basics well. Mm. Yep.
1: So speaking of the recipe then, um, would you advocate for a, a very traditional RSI approach where you use thiopentone, suxamethonium and cricoid or are there other ways to do it?
2: There are other ways to do it. Um, that the thio sux tube adage still holds true I think um, but I think it's worth replacing the thio with the propofol. We could talk about thiopentone versus propofol mm. for I think we
0: should. Yeah. general anesthesia. I think that is still contentious and people um, I know that people have uh, asked, asked about this all the time. Mm. Yep.
1: Did you use thiopentone or do you use
0: I use propofol hmm. I haven't used thiopentone for about 8 years
1: okay, what's the reason for that just familiarity um, or
0: yep couple of reasons I think we use propofol every day we know the dosing um, it doesn't look like kefazolin and it's easier to draw up and um, yeah I think it's safer because we know because we, we're familiar with it that's my main reason hmm. likewise
1: and I think NAP5 showed that more cases of awareness with thiopentone as well
0: and there has been some studies I don't know if they were observational or or randomised and and there didn't seem to be any difference in um, serious things like neonatal uh, respiratory depression or um, maternal sort of blood pressure um, numbers and things like that between the two (laughs) two.
2: Historically um, although Pantone clearly preceded propofol. Propofol came out in the 1980s. And when you look back at the literature, very early on there were studies done comparing thiopentam versus propofol for caesarean section, looking at things like uh, neonatal outcomes, um, intubation, um, awareness, things like that. Um, And when you look back at these studies, the studies were small, they were only in elective patients. And what they tended to show, which was one of the reasons there was concern with propofol for many, many years was that there seemed to be an increased rate of awareness in the propofol group and an increased, um, potentially an increased rate of new um, uh, neonatal depression right, in terms of APGARS. But <clears throat> many of the studies that were done weren't really powered for some of those outcomes. Uh, yeah. There were small studies. And also the anaesthetic technique at the time was very different to what we use now in so much as, um, like Roger said, there was um, not much in the way of volatile agents given after the induction dose of thiopentone or propofol and just reusing nitrous in many of the studies. Um,
0: and certainly over the years,
2: uh, these findings haven't really been, been shown.
0: No. I think nowadays too, especially a lot of these emergency caesareans are done after hours in... Um it's trainees or, or people rotating through the hospital who are doing them. Um, you know, they've never used thiopintone. And yeah. so um, expecting them to know the right dose and be, and use an unfamiliar medication is a bit un... Uh, uh, what's the word? It's just pretty... It's probably not a good idea. Yeah. It's probably the Yeah, especially when most of these
2: cases are um, out of hours. Yeah, I agree. In emergencies, using familiar drugs. And look, like if there was a clear... Um, signs that one was better than the other than we should. And there are still lots of people who who seem to be wedded to thiopentone. Um, some people will return back to the um, the package insert of thiopentone, which is indicated for obstetric use, whereas propofol is not indicated for obstetric use. And if you look I at your know. summary product characteristics in your
0: box of propofol, it will <laughs> tell you that you should be using some obstetrics. countries. Yeah. Some countries in the world don't have thiopentone. Um, well, yeah, at all, yeah. yeah I think Hong Kong is one, isn't it? Or well, I well, be wrong. They lost it in America. Yeah, it in right. the US for a long time. Yeah. Um, so some, um,
2: uh, but it's actually only indicated up to a dose of two hundred and fifty milligrams for obstetric use in the right. package insert. <laughs> so, so which is oh, wow. a, <laughs> which, a, which a is not low, low dose, dose anyway. So that yeah. argument doesn't hold true anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think really, you know, in the absence of a great benefit and all the detriment of having to reconstitute a powder yeah. that then ends up looking like an antibiotic. Yep. And um, there have been many cases. For I've I've, I've and seen one. and sucks tube. Mm. Yes, yeah. or spinal thiopentone tube. That's right, yeah. Tube. yeah. Which I have. <laughs> not, not, not expecting experience experience to, need to <laughs> give a tube. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so. That's right. um, I, I think in a cardiovascularly um, stable patient, propofol is uh, yep. a sensible thing to use. Yep, and then yeah, and
1: an cardiovascular, unstable <laughs> patient. Yeah, you and
0: so I guess the other um, induction agents that exist in the in the world are ketamine, atomidate in some countries, and mm. sometimes people use midazolam in um, patients who are really sick. Uh, and I guess depending on what your familiarity is, that's that's reasonable. I've certainly used ketamine in patients who have ruptured the uteruses or are really septic and are really unstable. Um, I wouldn't use it in sort of routine practice though. Yeah, no, I'd agree.
1: And for a, a standard GA Caesar without um, preeclampsia, would you use an opioid or what's common practice here?
0: Um, so I, I wouldn't, um, but obviously there is a subset of um, pregnant women and this is fairly common preeclampsia. Your hypertensive disorders are fairly common um, and there is um, some evidence that there are definitely women who have you know, hypertensive, severe hypertensive um, responses to laryngoscopy. And there have been cases of intracerebral haemorrhage and things like that from people who haven't sort of blunted the the hypertensive response to laryngoscopy. Um, so the caveat to that is, yeah, if a woman's uh, got um, severe preeclampsia or, or a hypertensive disorder, then I probably would use a rapidly acting opioid like alfentanil or remifentanil. Um, but I think myself and most people that I know don't routinely use opioids before the. Uh, delivery of the fetus, although the short-acting ones like alpha and remofentil probably wear off pretty quick and probably don't cause any real problems in, the, in, in uh, neonatal resuscitation. What's your take on that, Matt? Yeah, I'm very similar, Roger. I, I tend not
2: to unless there's a reason to. Um, that's not to say you shouldn't do, and I know quite a few people now do, Yep. Um, maybe because that's what we normally do, Yep. Um, and there is some evidence that it doesn't cause... Harm to the neonates, unless uh, fentanyl seems to be um, associated with lower apgar scores. Then a yes. dose of alfentanyl or remifentanyl. So that's I think we really are to do it's a bit longer acting. Exactly, it? kind yeah. of fits with the ph- pharmacology. So mm-hmm. we should probably use either alfentanyl or uh, remifentanyl, or at least let the neonates know that what yeah. we're doing. Um, but fentanyl maybe does hang around a little bit longer in the neonates.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I generally do try and tell the, the, the neonatologist or whoever's in charge of resuscitating the baby. Um, that I've given some opioid, even if it's a short-acting one, yeah. um, they, and they appreciate us saying that. And also, I also try and make sure if they come into the room and the woman's been asleep for quite a while, even if we haven't used an opioid, I've, I think you know if the woman's been under a GA for ten minutes or longer. My personal observation is the babies come out pretty flat. And sometimes, you know, with the accreta, percreta women who have been asleep for an hour or so, while they're putting catheters in the ureters and things, um, even though we haven't used an opioid, the, those neonates come out through. Very sleepy mm. and need, you know, intubation almost, yeah, you know, almost always. I think. I think related to this, Laura, is is
2: giving enough induction dose mm. as well. And, and one thing I always try and remember to do, and advocate, is having a second syringe available, um, because if you fail to intubate, um, redistribution of the induction agent is very rapid in a healthy um, obstetric patient. Yeah, um, and therefore. Uh, replenishing so not hope the induction is useful
1: mm. brilliant um so you've anesthetized the patient for your general anesthetic you've used propofol and no opioid what uh, neuromuscular blocking drug are you going to use
0: Do i use saxomethonium but i think using a large dose of rocuronium is also reasonable and, and, and uh, uh, both, I'm, both, I'm, both are fairly common i think around the world yeah, now i'm
2: tending to be saxomethonium. In the emergent situation, again, this is based on very little evidence, but I tend perhaps in the elective situation to use rocuronium because I'm a lot less worried about the time it takes to intubate. Though having said that, the most current evidence comparing one one milligram rocuronium versus one milligram saxomethonium suggests that rocuronium is non-inferior to saxomethonium in terms of um, time uh, time to intubation is slightly longer in rocuronium, only by about to in a bit seconds okay. in a big study uh, done a few years ago published in ijoa um, but it was a non-significant um, prolonged period of time but in terms of other measures of ease of intubation success of intubation there was no difference between saxomethonium rocuronium the only key significant difference was a lot more myalgic patients mm. yeah in, in the, uh, the uh, group.
0: I'm a bit like you, Matt, actually. For the elective caesarean women, they've fasted. They've all had, not ranitidine now because that causes, what does it cause? So it's been withdrawn <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> but some sort of acid um, medication, so they've got no acid in their stomach. Uh, and, I, you know, we have them head up and we use a video-ringoscope. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just use rock uranium. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mind bagging them a little bit and I don't use cricoid and they're elect- if they're an elective caesar. Yeah, I think this is really important because, because they are, going back to your initial question, low risk should risk.
2: we fear obstetric general anaesthesia, we, we really shouldn't fear those mm. cases. Yeah. We should. If fear they, them yeah, if you've examined the airway, it looks fine. Yeah, they're they're fasted, fasted, they're not labouring, They're not mm. got yeah, any APOs yeah. on board, treat them. I mm. mean, you know, there are thousands of patients who have now had their caesarean sections done with subglottic airway mm. devices
0: in that kind of group of, yeah, that, that sort of situation. That's the women who have so been in yeah. labour who are not fasted, there's food in the stomach, yeah. and I think this body hasn't been yeah. enough over. Mm. Yeah, they don't Recent get positioned times. properly. The drip's not working well. Everyone's in a panic. You take shortcuts. You don't check the airway properly because yep. everyone's yelling at you to get on with it. You know, these are the, uh, you don't pre-oxygenate properly. Mm. Maybe um, it's the middle of the night. You know, i experiences experienced um, this. You know, early in your career, all these things come together in the, in the worst possible time. Mm.
1: If you do suspect they are a difficult airway, would you have an inclination to use one over the other then in an emergency situation? If you can reverse Rockyranium with Sugamidex, is there any benefit of that, or do you think having one person there, you probably wouldn't have the manpower to draw it up, or would you have any change of heart if you thought? Um, you'd well, get that's a difficult one. So,
0: are you going? This is a whole. Uh, are you going to wake someone up or not? Is a very complicated uh, discussion anyway. Um, Some some of the indications, especially if it's a maternal indication to get on with caesarean, you know, bleeding or um, instability and things, then you're not going to wake them up anyway, are you? Um, So I know that there's a very complicated um, airway algorithm (laughs) that's put out, which has got like a um, (laughs) a big table of things about proceeding and waking, and it'd be hard to describe verbally over a podcast, wouldn't it, but... Um, Roger's
1: describing a table in the in
0: um, the difficulty OAS society, difficulty society yeah. the mm-hmm. obstetric anesthesia OAA society. Um. I think it's a good thing to think. It about is a good before thing before you yeah. go off to sleep. Um, yeah.
2: So, yeah. so what we're really talking about here is you put somebody off to sleep, and for a let's say an emergency cesarean section, and you um, fail to intubate. Yes. What are you going to do? So perhaps you've re-established ventilation with uh, a face mask or a um, super airway device then it's really the decision-making do we deliver or do we not deliver yeah. and it's going to be based on a number of different factors mm. and also the ease of what you're doing
0: at the time. Yep, so they include: I'll just read them out because it's easier and less, w- less waffly than my previous comments which were all over the shop <laughs> maternal condition, fetal condition they um, just talk about the experience of anaesthetics obesity, surgical factors aspiration risk and then alternative anesthesia options so that sort of um yeah, maternal condition obviously if they have if they're bleeding to death you're not going to wake them up but if it's you know completely elective during the daytime you could just wake them up and do a spinal that's different and um, for this fetal same with the fetus you know you do have to worry about the fetus although they're not as important in decision making as the mother obviously and you should never compromise the mother's care for the fetus but um that does come into it um and then uh surgical factors and aspiration risk you know if they've got an empty stomach um or if they've got a full stomach what do you think about that that's an interesting one because i think um waking someone up or letting the muscle relaxant wear off you know if you're ventilating them they're paralyzed with a supraglottic airway i then think letting all that wear off and then start coughing and gagging that's a Mm. that could make things worse not better um what do you think yeah, I think that's true. It's you know, it's easy to say. We'll just wake this patient up. It's
2: not always easy. Yeah, to wake we should wake them up. We should wake them up because their stomach's um, full
0: and we could not be able to get the tube in. Well, that actually it could make the aspiration more likely. Not yeah. And the other thing, of course, to think about is that uh,
2: if you do proceed down the route of delivery, then a lot of your problems go away as soon as you deliver.
0: Your oxygen, yeah. oxygen consumption's improved. Um, but I guess once uh, you your FRCs improved. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess what you're trying to weigh up though is once you um, incise the abdomen and the uterus, you've you've got at least sort of thirty to forty minutes of surgical time to fix that up. Um, so it's, you're sort of on a one-way track for a little while. Yeah. yeah. Interesting is
2: one thing that's not on that table. It mentions experience of the anaesthetist. but uh, Roger, what would you, if you're coming experience into a room, of the surgeon? exactly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I'm, I'm looking at. Yes, well they do
0: have surgical factors, and so that, that comes into that, you know, mm-hmm. if it's a complicated operation, but also is it like an experienced, slick team, you know, you've got an um, obstetrician, you know, we'll have this done and dusted in 15 minutes, yeah. um, um, that would definitely make things different as well, yep.
1: Brilliant, so are there other things you can do to mitigate this risk? So we know that the difficult airway rate is higher and in failed, uh, intubation rate is also higher in the obstetric group. What sort of things can uh, a young novice anesthetist do to mitigate that risk?
0: Can we just go back? What so there's been quite a few good studies and surveys looking at the failed intubation and mm. difficult intubation mm. rates in mm. obstetrics, and, and quite a few years apart, and they haven't really changed that much, have they? Were you involved in one, Matt, Was, or uh, were you aware of them? Yes. I can remember some numbers, but I think you might know, remember them better than me.
2: Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to compare against non-obstetric patients because non-obstetric groups of patients have lots of different types of surgery and are men and women and different. Yeah. Um, but essentially, do we have the numbers here, Lauren? Yeah, um, so I think... So um, one in 400, thereabouts, mm-hmm. um, obstetric general anaesthetics are associated with failed intubation um, with an associated mortality of 2.3 per 100,000 general anaesthetics. Um, and difficult intubation which is obviously variably defined it's yeah it's right um, that is a bit more subjective mm-hmm. has been reported to occur in one in 21 obstetric intubations compared to one in 50 non-obstetric intubations yep um,
1: and I think worldwide there's one death for every 90 failed intubations
2: yeah that's a it's quite high isn't it sounds it? high that's really high yeah, yeah.
0: yep yeah.
2: So, so I guess those those are good good numbers to have. Mm. So, um, one in four hundred failed intubation rate. And my memory and then suggests in the non obstetric population we're looking at more one in four thousand. Does that ring a bell? Mm. Um, one in twenty one difficult obstetric intubations. And then yeah. for each failed intubation, the risk of mortality is one in ninety. Mm. Yeah, yeah That's
1: significant, was, isn't uh, it? Yeah. yeah, very significant.
0: Okay, and then what was your question, Laura? How do we mitigate those things? Yeah, what, what <laughs> do do <you> a spinal. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: let's say you are forced to do a general anaesthetic. What, what advice would you have to your trainees?
2: I, I, I would say uh, think about the reasons why these numbers are different to the non-obstetric population. So, so why is failed intubation higher and difficult intubation higher and then try and mitigate those things that make it higher so think about the anatomical and physiological differences in pregnancy and also the situational factors that conspire against us when we're trying to do
0: this safely mm. for example Roger mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah this, so this, the anatomical ones you know they, they talk about in labor uh, and in pregnancy you know, the woman um becomes more edematous so perhaps there's more edema in the upper airway um, not 100 percent convinced of that, but it, certainly there are some patients who become very edematous. you say you have some, see some obstetric patients who get very puffy so that might make um, the anatomical view during laryngoscopy more difficult than when they weren't pregnant. Uh, positioning so you know when it's an urgent situation and they get rushed into theater and the cords there's a fetal bradycardia, you know you, if you don't position them well, you may have difficulty getting. An optimal laryngoscopic view, and that might you make your own job worse. So that's, I guess that's uh, anatomical and situational. Yeah. Um, what else?
1: Can I just ask, Roger, when you when you talk about the edematous airway, Airways, there anything yep. we can do, I mean, do you advocate using a video laryngoscope or a short handle blade, or?
0: Yeah, I just I, well, I advocate that, um, that we should use a video laryngoscope. Yeah, we use a Mac because um, it's a familiar. Hmm. Device. But other devices are available. Other devices are available, yeah, I think. Um, you know, a video laryngo- laryngoscope that allows you to do direct and indirect vi- um, laryngoscopy is, is is really useful mm-hmm. and, and enables your assistant to see what's yeah. going on as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and if everything. one fails, the other can take over. You know, if you get blood or a mucus on the, on the camera, you can still see directly, and or yep. vice versa. If you get a poor view directly, you can still see video. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm sure most of the anaesthetic audience who are listening, and will know all the, the pros and cons of this debate. Um, what else? Um, what about cricoid? Yeah, listen, I'm not a big fan of it. Um, I, I know there's a, that's also another one of these sort of ongoing debates that bounce back and forth. Mm-hmm. I don't think the evidence for it when it was first described is huge. Um, I, I am a big fan of moving the larynx around to get a better view. Um, I think that's useful, but I'm not sure that pushing on the cricoid cartilage is going to stop anyone from aspirating and getting aspiration pneumonitis. I definitely think a little bit of head-up helps, making sure your patient is properly paralysed so they're mm-hmm. not coughing and bucking when you put the ringoscope in. That stops aspiration. Um, so giving you know an adequate dose of um, induction agent an adequate dose of muscle relaxant. Um, make, making sure you don't get hurried into inducing the patient before you've pre-oxygenated them. Because I've, you know, definitely, you know, I think of the patients where I've had unexpected airway difficulties. They are unexpected. I've expected everything to be fine, and mm. having the, all that extra oxygen in their lungs before the, mm. the bad event happens is definitely something you want to have on board. rather than just sort of three breaths and off we go, and then then regretting it later, um, should we talk a any bit about any other pre-oxygenation? Yeah, yeah, and I guess there's apneic oxygenation too. Some people talk about that, don't they?
1: So what end tidal what you would you aim for, or do you do just a certain number what do
0: you of tidal breaths, or what? Go for, I go. I actually look for eighty percent end tidal, But what do you what do you do, mate? Yep. I've been talking too much. <laughs>
2: Likewise, uh, it's, it's. I think it's very relevant to provide optimal oxygenation. Yep. Given that uh, desaturation can be extremely rapid. Yep. For the fact that we've got reduced FRC and mm. we've got increased oxygen consumption. And metabolic demand because of the uh, the fetus, um, so optimal pre-oxygenation is actually very relevant and very yeah, important. Yep, agree. And again, positioning is uh, may benefit that a little bit of head up. Yep.
0: Um, we briefly mentioned
2: did we mention nasal oxygenation or I said um, apneic oxygenation.
0: Yeah, so that's obviously um, you know fairly um, topical. Yeah, and there's, there's been some enthusiasm a out there.
2: few relatively small studies on this. Um, suggesting that it doesn't seem to be in the obstetric group of patients um, as beneficial in terms of, or as equivalent in terms of pre as in the non-obstetric Great. group. So face mask pre certainly seems to be better. And there's obviously concerns with engorged nasal mucosa and the risk yeah. of bleeding, um, aspiration of air, things like that. But certainly the, the, the very small studies that have been done in um, either human volunteers... suggests that it may not be as good as um, just good quality face mask preoxygenation. So that's a tight fitting mask, high flows of oxygen. We're we're very anxious about high flows of oxygen at the moment, but um, to optimally preoxygenate, there's quite good evidence that turning your flow is really high reduces some of the leak and therefore um, reduces entrainment of air and you'll pre more effectively yep. and then and in, yeah
0: aim like 0.8.85. the good thing is that most pregnant women don't have a beard so you can get a good seal from mm. you don't usually have that problem it's not true <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to the obstetric anesthesia basics podcast series a short podcast series designed for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia these discussions are designed to encourage uh, understanding and appreciation of the challenges issues that are frequently encountered in this area of anesthesia however there is no such thing as one correct way to practice obstetric anesthesia equipment drugs facilities protocols and practices will and do vary across hospitals geographical locations and time you should always ensure that you follow the appropriate practice in your own institutions thank you for listening